All right, we're rolling once again, Brother Kevin. We have reached the middle of the week once more. We are recording this just before the vice presidential debate. So we're going to try to keep this brief so you can watch it. I know you enjoy those political things of this world, you heathen. I actually don't enjoy them. I just enjoy watching the debates. <laughs> I, I love watching debates. I always have. I, I like to try to figure out what's going on. And, and and I love hearing both sides, which brings us to what we're going to be talking about tonight. And that is looking at some Q&A when it comes to what you've been discussing the past few weeks. And I'm glad because I'm actually going to be able to talk a little bit in these episodes, not because I know what I'm talking about, but because I'll be able to actually ask you some questions. So I'm happy about that. <laughs> Man, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to this. And just like we were talking about before we started recording this, the biggest concern that I have is being able to do this material justice, because for me, it's hard to be able to nail down exactly how to answer these questions in a concise way. And so many of these questions don't have a concise answer. If you if you try to answer it with brevity, you're going to leave stuff out. And I'm I'm just I'm petrified about that. I don't want to do that. I don't want to create more questions in the mind of our listeners, but we've, we've received a ton of questions. We've received a lot of feedback on this series that we've done, and it's been really good. I've received a lot of good feedback and a lot of good questions from our listeners, and I know you've received some feedback as well that's been good, and you've also received some some questions that have um, come from a place of concern. So we're hoping that we can dive into this, do those questions justice, and answer them to the satisfaction of, of everybody that sent them in. So if you're ready, I'm ready whenever you are, brother. Yeah, when it comes to this topic, and not just this topic, but really all topics, it's important to have an open mind, to keep an open mind. And I sincerely am still neutral on this issue. I had one guy who emailed me and he said he just it amazes him how I can be so neutral and not correct you. Uh, but <laughs> but the, the point is, is that this is something, yeah, I understand what I was taught, but you brought a lot of good points to the table. And this is a lot of deep, deep stuff and for lack of better words and and it takes a while to to sort through a lot of this and and really just to kind of decipher to be able to come to your own conclusions and so i really just encourage everybody listening right now whether you agree with lee whether you disagree with him at least be willing to listen and not just lee but anybody you come in contact with if you hear a position that's different than the current position you hold be willing to listen. Be willing to 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 go a little bit deeper than just oh well you disagree with me so you you must be wrong. Uh, Lee may be wrong, but he also may be right, and so we're really going to be getting into the nitty gritty on this. And these are questions that you've sent in, so this these are not just softball questions that uh, Lee and I have have discussed beforehand. This, in fact, Lee has not even told me how he's going to answer these yet. I've already sent these to him, obviously, so he had time to prepare. But uh, these are questions that I actually personally went through because Lee said, hey, what do you want me to, to answer? And so I have compiled these based upon what people have sent in, based upon discussions I've had with other people, and also questions I have for Lee. So it's it's a combination of all of those. So let's get right into it. And the first question is this. The creation story, if taken literally, shows how God created humans as adults and the earth is already matured. Could it not be the case that the earth looks older than it really is because that's the way God made it? That question is a great question, and the answer to that question is, at first, that was an explanation that worked for me. And then it became more untenable of an answer. It was one that I found less satisfaction from the more I studied. 
And the framework of this question has to do with what's called the apparent age theory or the apparent age hypothesis. And what the apparent age hypothesis states is, is what is inferred within the question itself that, well, God made everything and yeah, the universe looks incredibly ancient, but it looks that way because God made everything mature. You know, whenever God made the earth, he made, he didn't just plant seeds in the garden. He made fully grown trees. He didn't just make an infant or a baby. He made a fully grown man. God didn't make chicken eggs with nothing to incubate them. He made fully grown chickens. And so with everything being made mature, well, then you have the appearance of age. Whenever it comes to light traveling through the solar system, God put those photons of these stars that are billions of light years away. He put them in place to where they would strike Earth and we would be able to see these these stars over these great distances. The radioisotopes within rocks, it's implied through this idea that those radioisotopes within rocks that demonstrate ancient ages were already somewhat broken down and decomposed over time, meeting or close to meeting their half-life. So that's what the idea is, is that everything is made with apparent age. It's all only really 6,000 or so years old, but it looks incredibly ancient. And like I said, that worked for me for a little while, but that perspective became untenable as I studied more. And the irony is, is what made this untenable for me was the Bible. It, it wasn't that you know, science was being misunderstood or whatever else. But what made it an explanation that I couldn't accept anymore is Bible study. If we look at Romans, what the Apostle Paul says is in uh, Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, he speaks about the the natural nature that, that people have and, and that the Gentiles had. And he says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. So God has shown something to them. He has demonstrated himself to them. And in verse 20, the Apostle Paul explains how these pagans have in a, a way, an ability to know about God. He says, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his or his eternal power rather and godhead so that they are without excuse the idea is is that the created order is something that god has given to all of mankind he gave the jews his own special chosen people his law and selected them from among the peoples of the world to be his people but to everyone else he gives them a book of his works as sir francis bacon called it the that nature is the book of god's works the created order those things that god had made reveals god to all men uh, the psalmist says in Psalm 19 in verse 1, the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. And in all this, one thing that gets people spooked when you start talking about ancient ages and evolution is the idea that evolution is so often posited and presented as a godless endeavor. It's, it's presented as a random game of chance that has no driving intelligent force behind it. And I reject that idea wholeheartedly, full stop. I believe that God is the ultimate source of all things and that God absolutely created everything that we see. Everything that we hold, everything that we observe came from God in his creative moment. The disagreement is on how did he do that? And in these passages, we see God's creative power representing his majesty. But in Paul's case, he speaks of creation being that testimony to the existence of God to those who hadn't received the law. 
David said that the created cosmography demonstrates God's handiwork. Now, with all of that in mind, here's where apparent age comes in. If all of the universe points us to God and all of the created order demonstrates God's power and his majesty and his might, why would God make the world with the appearance of an ancient age when it isn't ancient? That's the biggest question for me. If God created all things and demonstrates that he is here and reveals himself to us through that creative order, then what purpose does it serve to give it the appearance of an ancient age? And I'm not talking about a few thousand years old or a few hundred years old. You know, we have some pine trees that are several hundred years old. My uh, uh, father-in-law, he had a cottonwood tree in his back pasture that we had to cut down because it was old. And based on the rings and counting those and everything else, we estimated that tree was somewhere between 250 to 270 years old. So these trees that God made, if he created everything de novo, just from, from nothing as it, as it reads literally in Genesis, then it stands to reason that we would see some trees that are several hundred years old and everything else. But there are some trees that are much older than that. The bristlecone pine in California, there's one of them that's estimated to be somewhere around 5,000 years old. The idea isn't too hard to swallow whenever we think of those things. It makes sense. Because, like I said, initially, oh, did you have something you wanted to say? Yeah, so so this is this is where because this is interesting. Uh, I'm once again, I want to reiterate, I'm hearing this for the first time too. So this this was that's a good point. And because because initially my my pushback would be, well, if God says He made it old, then isn't isn't that good enough? But what you're saying is is a pretty good counterpoint, in my opinion, because. I'm just sitting here thinking about what you just said. And if my argument is, well, God created a mature earth, and obviously we don't know how mature, sure, God could have created trees, already trees. We, If we take a literal approach, he did that. God created Adam and Eve, not as babies, but as full-grown humans. But he didn't create them as humans who were you know, 1.8 billion years old. Uh, he didn't create a tree that was, you know, that was millions and millions and millions of years. So I, I can see what you're saying. I don't know if I necessarily am there with that point, but I at least I want the audience to understand what your argument is not. Well, you know, God couldn't have made it look ancient, but even if you take the position God created a mature earth, why would God have created it that mature? Yeah. <laughs> and, and that to me is the question that I couldn't answer. And it, and it gets even deeper than that. I mean, it, it's not hard to swallow that in a de novo creation account that you have trees that appear to be hundreds of years old, but they're not. You have humans that are maybe, we'll just pick 35. That's a nice round age. Maybe he made Adam and Eve look like they were 35 in the garden or maybe in their early 20s. Who knows? And, and that's not a hard idea to comprehend. And it's not a hard idea to accept. Because if you plant seeds without mature insects to pollinate them, your plants aren't going to survive. If, if you create eggs without birds to incubate them, that's not going to work either. If you create Adam and Eve as infants, here they are, they're infants. Maybe they have an umbilical cord. Maybe they don't. And they're just kind of laid right there in the floor of the Garden of Eden. All right, good luck. You know, without a parent to take care of them, it's just, it's not going to work. It, it demands that the appearance of age or rather um, that apparent age hypothesis the creation account demands that that's the case. But the issue is, what about rocks? And that's the question that, that hit me really hard. What about the radioisotopes that are found in different kinds of igneous rock? I mean, why create igneous rocks with ratios of potassium and argon or rubidium and strontium and uranium-238 to 235 parent-daughter elements that indicate billions of years old? 
that's not really necessary. That, that has no real functional purpose. If that is what God did in making the world with apparent age of billions of years old, this is the issue that I had is it seems deceptive. It's like, it, it, it makes perfect sense that you're going to have some trees because those trees that existed, if we take a 6,000 year timeline, those trees that existed then are likely not still up or still alive. Maybe one or two of them are, and we just haven't found it, but they probably aren't there anymore. But those rocks are still there and we can measure the isotopes within those rocks. If that's what God did, it seems deceptive. It's almost like he's up there saying, well, you know, the earth is only about 6,000-ish years old, but I'm going to make it look way older. You know, the heavens declare my handiwork, and through creation, my invisible attributes are clearly seen. But wait a bit, and this is really going to throw them for a loop when they develop the technology to examine this. <laughs> so yeah, so your, your, your question to someone who, like myself, who even would, would – would ask that in all good sincerity, that question of, well, could it not be the case God created mature? Your counter question would be, sure, he could have. And it would have even been understandable had, you know, the earth been maybe a few hundred years older than the way it seems, perhaps even a few thousand years older than the way it really is. But why would God create this universe to look millions, uh, perhaps billions, depending upon, uh, you know, what, what, who you're listening to and, and what, you know, how far you're will, you're willing to go with it, but at least millions of years older than what it really, really is. Is that, is that what you would say? Oh yeah, absolutely. And, and to me, the answer, well, that's just how God made it. We have to accept it on faith. That didn't work for me anymore because the evidence that I kept reading about and studying in science indicates over and over and over and over again a consistently ancient universe. And if I'm going to accept that the Bible says that, well, and the Bible really doesn't even say that the earth is only 6,000 years old. That's an extrapolation that a monk made whenever he went through the, uh, and I can't remember the dude's name. Genealogies. But when he went through the genealogies and everything else, he arrived at an age of around 6,000 years old. But if I'm going to say, okay, well, I can necessarily infer that there's some necessary inference for you, but I necessarily infer that from the scriptures, but all this evidence says something else. Well, does that mean that God made the earth with apparent age? Does that mean that God is placing a test of faith there? And that's going to be the counterpoint. Well, God made it look that way as a test of faith, you know, to see if we'd really believe what he said. But if this, if nature clearly demonstrates God and shows us his creativity, then if I trust what's in nature, am I not then trusting what God has revealed in nature? Why shouldn't I trust what God has revealed? I mean, if we look at Numbers 23, 19, Hebrews 6 and 18, 1 Samuel 15, 29, Titus 1 and 2 and other scriptures, the scriptures aver consistently and over again that a fundamental aspect of God's nature is truthfulness. God does not lie. And if God doesn't lie... And if God reveals himself to us in nature, and if nature demonstrates an ancient origin in practically every way you examine it with overwhelmingly consistent evidence, then it seems reasonable to me that we can trust the conclusions that God has revealed to us through nature. But then the natural follow-up question to that is, is, well, if we can trust what God says, quote-unquote, in nature, doesn't that mean we have to distrust what he says in Scripture? And I don't think that's the case. Because when we start to examine nature with these sophisticated means that we've discussed in these other podcasts over time, we have at our disposal today these systems and the technology and the knowledge that provide consistent, trustworthy data. 
And if that data contradicts scripture, data that we can see and examine and mold and move in our hands that we can see and repeat time and time and time and time again, the conclusion that I've come to on that isn't that scripture is inerrant, that it's a book of fairy tales and we can chuck it out the window. It's not scripture that's the issue. It's our approach to interpreting scripture that's the issue. And at that point, we need to reorient ourselves toward what the Bible's purpose is in light of all of that. Well, this gets back into what we discussed a few episodes back, and that is we have to read the Bible within its context. And here we are living in 2020, where we know a lot about a lot of things, and we're living in a completely different culture, completely different society, thousands of years removed. And so it's easy for us to read into the Bible the context that we think is there instead of the context that's actually there. And that gets into studying ancient Near Eastern literature and, and things like that, which unfortunately just a lot of, of Christians don't do. Uh, they've not trained themselves properly on how to understand these things. And that's not a knock against anybody. That's not saying, oh, you're not smart enough to understand if you're listening. What it's saying is we need to be humble enough to admit we can't just pick up the Bible especially the Old Testament, which, you know, at least when we talk about the New Testament, we're dealing with letters, so it's a little bit easier to decipher in the last 2,000 yeah. years. But when you're talking about going all the way back to the first book in the Bible that was written thousands of years ago, then it, we have to be humble in the way that we approach this. And so just hearing what you what you just said, so if you were to summarize it, from what I'm understanding, what you're saying is the Bible says we can know who God is God is based upon nature. We can know the type of God that God is based upon the nature, based upon how he communicates to us through nature. Nature teaches that that God that uh, or, or excuse me, science from what we know, nature and science teach that this universe is infinite. And this in, this universe is you know we we really don't even know how old it is, but it, it's it is a very old ancient universe. And so because of that, if we then turn around and say, but we're going to trust our own understanding based upon how we're reading Genesis, and it can't be ancient, not because of what science tells us, but because of what my own preconceived idea and approach to Genesis tells me, then what you have is basically a deceptive God. Is that what you're saying? That if, if God is telling us through the Bible, he reveals himself through, through nature and then on the one hand, nature tells us that this this world has been here a long time, this universe has been here a long time, but then the Bible tells us, no, it hasn't. Are you saying there seems to be a lot of tension there between trying to understand who God really is if, in fact, nature it does reveal God? I think so. I think that's a really good way to put it. And I, I can say a hearty amen to what you just said, at least from my perspective, dude, because I mean, what kind of God do we serve? That, that's what this question boils down to. Well, let me and, ask this. And, oh. Well, just hold on, hold that thought. Okay. The thing, the thing is, is that with with this idea of a six thousand year age, the Bible never tells us how old the Earth is. The Bible never tells us how old the cosmos are. That's an extrapolation that was made somewhere around the twelfth century. So, I mean, even saying, well, the Bible tells us the earth is this old. Well, it really doesn't. I mean, that's a deduction that some people have made. And the question to me is, is, well, did they take the literary structure of those passages that they used to arrive at that conclusion into account? Did they not? I mean, you know, there's a lot of other questions there. Anyway, sorry. So what, what was your other question that you had? Yeah, well, I was going to say that, first of all, to what you just said, it, it would be a presupposition 
to say we know we know for a fact that the Bible is young because the Bible says so because the Bible simply does not say so that that no, is, or the earth is young yeah, or yeah. What, did, what did I say the Bible yeah you said the Bible I'm is sorry. young yeah yeah no, the Bible's anyway. old the Bible's old no uh, so <laughs> comparatively it's young but when you look at the the idea of the universe and in the earth the the presupposition I was always taught is hey the Bible teaches that the the universe is young. This this it's a young earth. This is what the Bible emphatically clearly teaches. And that in and of itself is a presupposition. And that is something from my understanding, obviously, you challenge and other scholars challenge because they say, wait a minute, that that is not true. We can't go to the Bible and prove that the earth is young. That is one way of interpreting the genealogies in Scripture if you take a straightforward literal approach. And even then, there's some problems with that when we'll get into. But the point is, is that that's already a presupposition. And so it would be one thing if the Bible says God created the heavens and the earth, you know, this this date. Yeah, <laughs> and, exactly. And, and, and to me, that would that would be a problem. So we're might, we might even be talking about something that isn't really a problem with Scripture so much as it is a problem with the presupposition and neither one of us think that it's a problem with scripture anyway. But when you, when you, when you get into some of the passages you just mentioned in the Psalms and Romans, let me ask it this way, cause I'm just thinking about this and this, this isn't something that I had asked you prior to prepare for, but if Uh-oh. those, if those passages were not in the Bible, if, if the Bible never said anything about the universe being God's handiwork or anything like that, would that cause you to take a second pause to what you're teaching right now? Would you say, well, since the Bible doesn't tell us God reveals him, him, his, self, his self through the, the universe in creation, would, would that eliminate this argument? Would you feel like, okay, God could have then created an earth to look billions of years old or millions of years old, and, and yet it only be six or 7,000 years old? Would you say that ha- if those passages are not there, does that change your mind any? You know, I honestly don't know if it would. I, I honestly can't answer that one way or the other. I'm just not sure because that's what initially led me to think about it within these terms. But at the same time, you still have the conflict behind what has been revealed versus it, what has been revealed in Scripture and stated in Scripture versus what has been revealed through scientific inquiry. So even in that sense, it almost seems as though the implication that God is being deceptive could still be made. Because if the Bible is the inspired word of God, and I believe that it is, and if I am to take the scriptures literally from cover to cover, which many people do, um, in that instance, the implication still exists that God is deceptive because he is deceiving me in scripture or if I understand that he created everything, then he may be deceiving me through what he has revealed in creation. If I, if I have to pose or, or oppose those two ideas against each other, that dichotomy still exists. So I don't know. I can say that at this point, for me, it wouldn't change my mind. But it may not, if, they, if those passages weren't in the scriptures, it may not have led me down that direction in the first place. So yeah, I, I'm just wondering how really heavy how heavy you're relying on on that whole ideology of well, since God said He revealed Himself to us through Scripture, I mean, well, through Scripture, but also through nature itself, then nature and Scripture can't contradict or even seemingly contradict contradict. And if they do contradict, we shouldn't have to pick one or the other because, for, for that matter, you could say, well, God revealed Himself through nature. I'm going to choose nature over the scripture because clearly in the bible god tells us that 
God has revealed himself in both ways. And that's the false dichotomy that has been set up. You either have to choose science and nature, or you have to choose the Bible where God says, hey, it's both. <laughs> it's not yeah, It's not yeah. an either or. So, okay, well, let me ask you this then. So this, this is a follow-up to, to everything you just said. We're, we're, we're going to get back to, to the questions that we, we did prepare here uh, that I had sent you earlier. So based upon everything you, you've just said, I'm hearing what you're saying, and I'm sure people at home who are listening, they understand. I, to me, that's very clear. But if I'm, if, I'm, if I'm debating you, which I'm not, but if I were debating you, my follow-up question would be this. Lee, that's all good and well what you just said, but God told us in the Bible— that he did create a mature earth. So whether it science tells us that it's, you know, 500 years older, 10,000 years older, or 10 billion years older, it really doesn't matter because God told us he created a mature earth. So really, it doesn't matter what how old science tells us it is because God already told us that he created a mature earth. So it really just doesn't matter. It certainly wouldn't be dishonest. It wouldn't be any different than me saying, okay, I'm, I'm everything I'm about to tell you that is 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 true, but realize that I started with a, a certain point in time, so it's going to look older because this is the way I'm creating it. So it shouldn't be a debate at all. And that's something that I have heard people in conversations bring up is that since God told us it's a mature earth, and that's assuming that you take a literal approach to Genesis one through three, then how would that be deception? Well, and we'll get into that in just a minute because that's another one of those follow-ups, and I really like that question. But this question's a good question, but the issue is, is that it still rests on that presupposition that God told us how old the earth is. God didn't tell us in the scriptures how old the earth is. He doesn't do that. Yeah. There is no statement made in the scriptures from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, that tells us that the earth is 6,248 years old, seven months, three days, and 14 hours. It, it doesn't say that. It doesn't even come close to saying that. The Bible does tell us that God did make a mature earth, but he doesn't say, or the scriptures don't say how old that mature earth is. That's still a question or a statement that's predicated upon that presupposition that the earth is 6,000 years old. That's still some of that baggage is bringing forward to it. Um, and it also presupposes that God did create the earth with that apparent age in mind, and it creates another problem. And to me, the biggest problem that it creates is the idea that we can't trust what we see with our own eyes. In, in astronomy, one of the things that we mentioned is the speed of light. You know, you have stars that are billions of light years away. In a light year, we know that light travels very, very, very fast. It's the fastest thing in the universe. Photons of light are what are called by astrophysicists the, the universal speed limit. Nothing can go faster than light. According to Einstein's theory of uh, general relativity, if you go faster than light, or if you go the speed of light, time stand still. And if you go faster than light, time moves backwards. And that gets into a lot of physics that I don't have the inclination nor the ability to go into. I just told you just about everything I know about. Dude, I, I barely passed seventh grade science. So <laughs> we don't have time for me to talk about my physics experience in college, but it was interesting. In any case, though, the idea is, is that you have a light year. That is the distance that light can travel in one year. And light travels incredibly fast. The, the actual speed of light escapes me at the moment, but I'm not going to take the time to look it up. But it's fast. You can Google it. All you listeners, you have Google at your fingertips. Google the speed of light. A light year is the amount of time, or the distance rather, that light can travel in one year. A lot of the stars that we look at 
says uh, 186,282 miles per second. Per second. Per second. Per second. That's right. The sun is 93 million miles away. It takes light 93 million miles. Whenever a photon of light leaves the sun, it takes eight minutes for it to get from the sun to here. So if you travel at the speed of light, it takes eight minutes to travel 93 million miles. It's ridiculous. And the sun is super close. I mean, it lights up our sky. It powers our earth. I mean, you can see it. And if you stare at it, you'll fry your eyes. But you look at the stars out in the night sky. Those stars are way further away than our sun. But many of them are bigger than our sun. They're billions of light years away. And what that means is that it would take those photons that are emitted from those stars. If they're 2 billion years or light years away, it would take that light photon 2 billion years to reach, to go from that star to reach our eyes. Now, here's the issue that you run into. This idea that God made the universe in such a way that the light waves from far distant stars were already in place there are certain stars that are far further away than we can see with our naked eye that have exploded. Whenever a star uses up all of its fuel, it goes into what's called a supernova state. Our sun, for example, is primarily made of hydrogen, and that hydrogen undergoes a nuclear reaction, nuclear fusion, where hydrogen transforms into helium. And whenever all the hydrogen is used up and becomes helium, our sun's going to explode. And whenever the sun explodes or whenever a star explodes, it puts out a ton of light. The Hubble Space Telescope has observed supernovas that have exploded. And the issue that you run into is, is that if we observe these supernovae, we're viewing an event that never actually took place because of the speed of light. We know how fast light travels. We know how far away these stars are. But if the Earth is only 6,000 years old, and those supernovae were not exploding then, but they're exploding now. Those photons left that supernova long before the Earth was ever even created. And that's a problem. We're saying that we can't trust what we can see right now with our own eyes that God made. And to me, I think this question can be restated. Is it possible for the Earth to appear old to science without it actually being old and without God being deceitful? And in my opinion, the answer is no. When you look at the patterns of fossil evidence, whenever you look at the patterns of geographical strata, whenever you look at the patterns of evidence that are locked in by physics and um, the, uh, I just went blank on what it's called, the radioactive decay, radioisotopes. Whenever you look at weather patterns and how they're layered in Arctic ice core samples that represent more than 100,000 years worth, and we're not talking millions, 100,000 years worth of ice alone, that's 94,000 years more than what we or what many people believe the age of the earth to be, these things along with lake varves and, and tree samples and all of these other things lead to one consistent conclusion over and over and over again that the earth is way more than 5,000 years old. And that question rears its head again, why? Why would God do that? Why would God create this in, in this way? And I have yet to find anyone who can answer why God would make everything look ancient. To me, there's, there's no real way to answer that question without getting into tests of faith, which kind of leads into the next question. Yeah. So this is a question that, that I, I think is a good question. I actually asked this to Lee because no, no one, no one brought this up. So maybe it's not a good question, but this is one that I was thinking about that I wanted Lee to answer. 
because this gets more into theology and and I like discussing theology a whole lot more than science. So, uh, <laughs> me too. So, so so this is so to to me everything you just said seems predicated on the idea of our understanding that God in no way could ever ask us to choose between believing him versus believing something else that is contrary to what we know based upon science or nature. Uh, but there are times, and, and this is kind of a two-parter, there are times that God, we know, purposefully hides truth or has hidden truth from those not sincerely looking. For example, you have Mark 4.14, where the Bible says Jesus spoke in parables so they would not understand. Uh, you also have God sending a strong delusion in 2 Thessalonians 2.11. And I know you're going to talk about those in context here, but even going further than that, we do see times that God places tests uh, among people to see if people are willing to follow him and to see if to, to really prove it to ourselves, if we're willing to follow God uh, based upon what we believe or know to be true in nature itself. For example, I think of say Sarah and Abraham uh, having a child it was well past time of childbirth. And, and we understand this to be a miracle with what happened with Sarah and Abraham uh, with, ha with them having a child scientifically, that would be impossible. Uh, but with with God, he wanted them to place their trust in him. And I, and I think of other passages, not just with Sarah and Abraham having a son, but also what God told Abraham to do with his son uh, when it came time to, I want you to, I want you to kill him. And we know that God actually didn't allow him to follow through with that. But there are times where God does things that we see in the Bible that seem to be very different than the way maybe we want him to act or we want him to behave. And so I don't necessarily know it'd be beyond God based upon other things we know about God in scripture for him to lay forth these quote unquote faith test, if you will, that does pit science or what we know to be true. Like, you know, if you're, if you're an old woman, you can't have a baby versus, versus what God said with me is possible. So and, he, and this even gets into Jesus himself being born a, a, of a virgin. We know that can't be true scientifically. So, so how do you pair, how do you handle that? Uh, it, if we know that God can not only purposefully hide truth from those not sincerely looking, but He oftentimes did have faith tests based upon what people would know to be true scientifically versus what He's asking them to believe. Could it not be the case that that's what we have here? I don't think that it is. And as it relates to the tests of faith with Abraham, in my mind, you have it's kind of an apples and oranges thing. You really have something that's not like the other because with and Abraham, by the way, that wasn't in the notes either. So I'm I'm throwing yeah. some curveballs at you tonight. Just just yeah, so the buddy. audience can know these are not all softballs. I promise. Oh, I don't <laughs> think anyone's gonna think that these are softballs, man. <laughs> This is hardcore. No, I'll remember this whenever it's your turn to be on the answering end of the next Q&A, dude. That's why, man. You had me on the panel. Now I'm getting you on, on this, so it's, it's fun. Shoot, dude. Well, well, I mean, the, the thing is, is like with Abraham, to me, it's not really a, a perfect parallel because you have God measuring and testing Abraham's faith. You have him, you know, calling him to act and determining whether or not he would be obedient by calling him to engage in a certain set of behaviors or to do a certain set of things. And with, with nature, I, I don't really see there being a perfect parallel there. But as the other things go, as far as, you know, Mark 4.14 and what is that over in Matthew's account? That's what, Matthew 13, something like that. 
um, the idea of these parables and then the idea of strong delusion. I don't necessarily think so. I don't know that the context of the parable of the sower in Mark 4 and in Matthew 13 or the context of 2 Thessalonians 2 really applies in that way. I'm not sure that we could say that that's a test of faith or that applies to a test of faith. Because in Mark 4, you have the parable of the sower. And in verse 11, um, Jesus says, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. He's told them the parable of the sower. A certain sower went out to sow. He cast seed. And you know some fell by the wayside. Some fell on thorny ground. Some fell on stony ground. Some fell on good ground, etc., etc. And then he explains the parable after this little exchange. He says, To you it has been given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, in verse 11, but those who are outside, but to those rather who are outside, all things come in parables. So that, and he quotes the prophet Isaiah here, seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they should turn and their sins be forgiven them. Now, the issue that I have with this idea of Jesus being willfully obtuse and presenting it in such a way that they wouldn't understand, it seems to go against the grain of what God wants. You know, there was a time where Jesus didn't want anyone to know he was the Messiah because he didn't want to be, at least my understanding is, is he didn't want to be executed before his time, before his time had fully come, before his ministry was over. But with Jesus, in this sense, God desires that that all men come to know him. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance, the Bible tells us. So it makes no sense for me, or to me rather, for Jesus to frame things and postulate things in such a way that people genuinely won't get it. It's like, you know what, I don't want these people over here to get it. And, and maybe that's not being fair to the question. But in this sense, it seems to say that, it seems to say exactly that, that Jesus' desire will be that those who hear his parables won't understand it. But that doesn't make sense to me. And whenever you read this passage in that beautiful scholarly translation, the message, and that's a you know a little bit of sarcasm there. <laughs> I, I really do think, though, that they that they put this well. When they were off by themselves, those who were close to him, along with the twelve, asked about the stories. He told them, you've been given insight into God's kingdom. You know how it works. But to those who can't see it yet, everything comes in stories, creating readiness, nudging them toward receptive insight. These are people whose eyes are open but don't see a thing, whose ears are open but don't understand a word, who avoid making an about face and getting forgiven. So it seems to me that with this translation, and I'm not the only one who who sees it this way, that Jesus isn't telling them straight up, I'm the Messiah, believe in me, or you're going to die. You know, you'll be dead, 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 and God will judge you forever. Because very few people respond to that kind of preaching. Some do, some don't, though. Most don't. And so in giving them this story to mull over, they're going to think about it, they're going to digest it, and whenever more information comes about, they're going to connect the dots and be like, oh, snap, this man truly was the Son of God. He's the one in whom we need to place our trust. And uh, in Adam Clark, in his commentary, he mentions this as it relates to um, the Matthean account of the parable of the sower. He says, it is not intimated that our Lord spoke to the Jews in parables that they might not understand. It's the very reverse, I think, which is plainly intended. It was to lead them by a familiar and appropriate mode of instruction into the knowledge of God and the interest of their souls. I speak to them, said he, in parables, that is, natural representations of spiritual truths that they might be allured to inquire and to find out the spirit which was hidden under the letter. Because, said he, seeing the miracles which I have wrought, they see not. 
That is the end for which I have wrought them and hearing my doctrines, they hear not so as to profit by what is spoken. Neither do they understand. They do not lay their hearts to it so as to consider it with that deep attention with which such momentous truths require. But that they might not continue in their ignorance and die in their sins, he adds parable to parable to make the whole science of salvation as plain as an intelligible as possible. Is not this obviously our Lord's meaning? Who that is not most miserably warped and begloomed, I like that word begloomed, by some Jewish exclusive system of salvation can suppose that the wise, the holy, the benevolent Christ would employ his time in speaking enigmatically to the people on purpose that they might not understand what was spoken. Could the God of truth and sincerity act thus? If he had designed that they should continue in darkness, he might have saved his time and labor and not spoken at all, which would have as effectually answered the same purpose, that is, that of leaving them in destructive ignorance, as his speaking in such a way should render his meaning incomprehensible. In other words, why would Jesus do that? He wants them to know who he is. So why would he make it to where they couldn't understand? And if that was his purpose, why not just say nothing at all? And to me, it seems that the purpose of the parables isn't to conceal the truth, but to convey information to the hearts of the hearers in the most concise, appropriate, impressive, and effective way possible. And and that's how I would answer the parable of the sower. I don't think that Jesus is saying this so that they don't understand. But as it relates to the strong delusion in 2 Thessalonians, the context there speaks to the coming of Christ and the willingness that some would have to believe in a false Messiah. And in verse 7, the Apostle Paul says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. And when the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So in light of that, Adam Clark, he says this about it too, and I think he's really good. I think what he has to say is really, really good here. It is not necessary here to suppose that there was any positive influence on the part of God in causing this delusion to come upon them, but all the force of the language will be met as well as the reasoning of the apostle by supposing that God withdrew all restraint and suffered men simply to show that they did not love the truth. God often places men in circumstances to develop their own nature, and it cannot be shown wrong that he should do so. So with that being said, it seems to me that the context of these passages and the idea that God allows men to be deceived and he's setting up a test of faith and he's allow- and that if you believe science over scripture, you're believing a strong delusion, is it, it doesn't work for me. I mean, it teaches that God uses deception to weed out the insincere and that that has nothing to do with science. And to me, it flies in the face of who God is revealed to be in scripture itself. Mark's account doesn't really state that Jesus' goal was to be willingly obtuse, and Paul's second Thessalonian letter is talking about the coming enemy of God and God allowing people to believe what they want to believe about that guy, whoever he is or whoever he was or whoever he will be. And in both cases, deception isn't desirable, nor does the deception come from God. So this question, to me at least, is really a non-starter from the jump. And I'm reminded of what James says in James 1 and verse 13 that, Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. 
And it's almost as if we're saying that God is saying, well, let me put these isotopes and these rocks that misdirect people into a godless worldview of billions of years. And let me put these stars billions of light years away from each other so I can really test the faith of folks on earth. That to me says more about the nature of God. And if that is the nature of God, I, I personally have a big problem with that. That doesn't work for me at all. I'm not saying that he didn't do that, but it seems really unlikely to me just based on what I've read and what I've studied. And, yeah, and and oh, go. Do you want to want to finish? Oh yeah, that? I, okay. Oh yeah, I would even say that whenever we trust in what science has shown us about the creative order, that we are trusting in God because He's the one who brought it all into existence in the first place, and He gave us the Bible that He gave us as hard as it can be to extrapolate from at times. And he gave us the universe that he gave us and he made it this way for a reason. So to me, it's, there just tends to be some disagreement in how we move through that and working through that as a part of this life. And it can get messy sometimes. So I want to circle, I want to circle back around here. First of all, I want to let people know we did plan for the original question, which is why you've had Mark and uh, Thess- second Thessalonians prepared uh, the, the additional information we didn't prepare for him. The reason why is because I just thought of it. Uh, I, just thought of, <laughs> I, I just thought of something else too. So I'm just going to keep throwing them at you tonight. But to, so to circle back, I know with James 1.13, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm tempted by God. For God can't be tempted, nor does he himself tempt anyone. At the same time though, would, would you not at least admit that there are times when God clearly asked someone to do something that violated rules of science or he had them to trust in in his plan that violated the rules of science and it was done as a faith test oh absolutely absolutely but i don't think that that's a perfect parallel or even a reasonable parallel to trusting what god has revealed in nature versus what the scriptures teach if one takes a literalistic reading of them Because in the scriptures, and the reason for that is, is in the scriptures, I don't see God demanding a test of faith for me to ignore everything that science says in order to accept him. And what he says in scripture is truth. I just, I just don't see that there. I don't see that as a test of my faith. I think that it's possible that it might be the case in this particular context, but it seems unreasonable to me that God would do that. So, and this this is kind of getting into, I think, the last question that we have. So, if 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 I ask it and you say hold off and we'll get to it, let me know. But it, it may it may work out here as well because we're already talking about Abraham. So, if if today God told you, hey, I'm going to do something that is that is anti science. It's against science. It's not scientific. In fact, it goes against everything you know about science. Trust, trust, though, that it's going to come to play. It's going to come to pass. It, it is. I am going to do it. It's going to go against your experience. It's going to go against everything, you know, but you're going to have to put your faith in me. I already know how you'd answer that. You'd say you'd put your faith in God. Could could I'm assuming <laughs> I'm just going to go out on a limb. Well, there. I, hope would, so. I would say that you would say, so. I'm going to trust God. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 in case anybody's listening and saying, well, I don't know if Lee would say that. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say, I'm pretty confident Lee's going to say, I trust God. If, if, and, and of course, going back to what happened with Sarah and Abraham, you know, we know Sarah laughed and, and, and what all happened there. So if that's the case, and we even see that with, of course, Mary and Joseph, and Joseph wasn't even able to speak because of his lack of trust. And, and I put myself oh, you mean in Zechariah. Uh, yes, I'm sorry. Yeah. yeah. And, and I, I put, I put my, my, 
self in his shoes when when okay I'm 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 hearing this okay and I'm I'm hearing this about about what's going to happen and I'm hearing about all these different miracles and I'm hearing about you know that that my son is going to be the prophet who is going to go before and, and prophesy about Jesus and he's going to be born of a virgin and I'm hearing about all this that would be really hard for me to accept I know we read the Bible oftentimes as this oh if you know we're the good guys we're the ones who always would follow God but you know, I'm, I think of Abraham and Sarah, and I think of, of of Mary's faith, and I think of of Zacharias, and I think about all these things, and Joseph, and I just I, I put all this together, and I just wonder if we were in their shoes, is that not the same thing that we're talking about here, uh, it, or could it not at least be parallel to an extent to say, hey, there are times when God clearly asked people to believe things that were against what they knew to be true. We would say scientifically, but back then they didn't have the developments we have today. So we would just say experimentally, no, that could not be true. If you don't have sex, you can't have a baby. That's that's you don't have yeah. to have science yeah. to know that. That's I mean, you know, to modern day oh, science, yeah. everybody understood that. So is there not some sort of correlation that people could argue against what you're saying in this point and say, yeah, Lee, I understand, but God's God's not tempting anybody any more than he tempted, you know, Abraham. These are just tests. And then you get into another theological conversation. What's the difference between attempting, you know, tempting someone and testing someone? But anyway, could could there is there a little bit of credibility perhaps? that you would be willing to say that that could be the case that God could have done these things and still not and still be a God worth worth worshiping. You see, and that's the thing. I think that if you accept the dichotomy that exists between science and faith, which I do not. Yeah. I think that if you accept that dichotomy, then it absolutely could be a test of faith for some people. I think the issue and what I'm pushing back against is the idea that this is a universal test of faith for everybody. Yeah. Because it's specific. well, well, let me let me just say this. I mean, uh, the tests of faith, their purpose. Whenever we look at Abraham and Sarah, for example, whenever we look at Elizabeth and Zechariah, whenever you look at you know Mary and the virgin birth, whenever you look at all of these things, we'll talk about miracles if we get to that here. I really want to finish this before that debate on your account, but <laughs> <laughs> but, but whenever you look at all of those things. What was the purpose of those tests? It was to push someone to lean on God and to trust in him. So I think in a really general sense, yeah, I mean, the the idea of science and faith and having to reconcile those things can be a test of faith. And I mean, I'll freely admit it was a test of faith for me because I was thinking, you know, I'm seeing all this, especially whenever it relates to supernovas. And what I said about supernovas and those stars explode if they're 6,000 years old and we're seeing a supernova, we're seeing something that never happened. And if God's putting something out there that never happened, this didn't actually happen. I'm going to just make it look like that it did happen. That was a big problem for me because I was still operating under that mindset of a dichotomy that exists between science and faith. And in that sense, it could be a test of faith for some people. But I feel like that if that's the test, and I'll even go so far as to say, yes, it was a test of faith. Let's just call it that just for the sake of conversation. I feel like I passed that test. Because my faith in God is way stronger now than it was then. My belief in a divine creator that holds the universe in his hands is stronger than it has ever been in my life. And five years ago, whenever I was much more fundamentalist, or even six years ago, when I was much more fundamentalist and hardline in my thinking and opposed evolution with every fiber of my being and opposed an ancient earth with every fiber of my being, my faith was not as strong then as it is now. 
So I would say that it can be a test of faith, but ultimately if the conclusion leads one to place their faith in God and their faith in God and Christ grows, then in that sense, they have passed the test regardless of what their conclusion is that they come to. The conclusion that I have come to is that biological evolution is the means by which God created man, that uh, geological evolution is the means by which God created the earth, and cosmological and astronomical evolution is the means by which God created the cosmos. That is how God did it. He is ultimately the source of all things, and he sent Jesus to this earth to be the propitiation for my sins, to to bear that penalty that I deserved. And my faith in all of that has never been stronger. And this line of thinking is what is in part what has led that faith to strengthen, at least for me. Yeah. And you said something that's interesting that because because this is good, you know, I want people to see we're really having a legit conversation and not just here. Yeah, none of this is in the notes. None of this is in there. So So, but but when you're talking, I think a very strong point that you made and I may be wrong about this because literally I'm just go. I, I'm literally spitballing. Yes, I'm. I'm having a legitimate conversation with Lee. This is how we talk off air when we're discussing things. This is how we how we talk. In fact, there was a conversation we had a few weeks ago. Lee's like, "Man, I wish I'd recorded that whole thing." But as you're talking, I'm thinking to myself that every single faith test in Scripture was typically individually. It was an individual faith test, and also there was God somehow miraculously already communicating with them in some form or fashion. And so I think that what what you're talking about is a lot different than some of the pushback questions that I was giving, because while I think that God does allow people to go through faith tests, the only time we see God doing that is when he reveals himself in some specific way, uh, whether it's through an angel, whether it's directly, whether it's through a burning bush, you know, if God told me, if, if God showed up at my doorstep and he told me to do something, I'm, I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to believe that. And I think that that's different than what, what what you're talking about. And I think you make it a good point by saying, look, it's different between God having these individual specific faith tests with people saying this is a faith test versus God giving this universal faith test. By the way, something that I thought about is when we were talking about the Gentiles earlier, and how God has revealed himself through nature, the Gentiles didn't have the Bible. Uh, They didn't have the scriptures, the Old Testament Hebrew scriptures. So in going with what you said, it's, it's, it's not the same thing for them. Why would God be deceiving people when they didn't even have a book to know how you know how old the earth was supposed to be. And so I, I do think that there's a lot of validity to how you answered that because there is a difference, at least in my mind, thinking this through and listening to what you said, between these individual faith tests where God comes down and says, hey, I want you to do something. It's going to be difficult, but I want you to do something. Or, hey, I want you to trust me. God always moved first in those faith tests. So why then would God put this universal faith test on absolutely everybody and nobody's aware of it. (laughs) Well, and the thing is, is it seems to me that the question could then be to me, you could answer that question almost like this. Well, you know, God put it in there. You either have to trust his word or you trust what these secular godless heathen evolutionists are saying. That's, that's a test. And God says it, you know, right there in the scriptures. But then the question to me is, is am I really, is it really a faith test from God? Am I really trust? And then if I answer that question, quote unquote, the right way, am I really placing my faith and my trust in God? 
or am I basing my faith and my trust on the presuppositional hermeneutical framework that undergirds that entire argument? I mean, to me, that's another, that's a whole other thing right there, man. Yeah. And, and I think one thing that I want the audience to know too, because I think I may have accidentally set you up for, for this and that wasn't my intent, but Hey, I was trained in debating, so it, it comes back every now and then to try to pin people who I who I'm listening to, and I don't even mean to. But I was I was listening to you, you know, talking, and I asked a question about choosing between science and God, and and that's kind of that presuppositional false dichotomy because your whole argument and belief system is not predicated on the idea that you have to choose one or the other. Yeah, uh, and, and and I and I want the listeners to know too that you're not saying that you deny miracles. And so that's that's the last one. Let's let's end on this one since we're here and we're going to come back to some other questions since I disrupted the outline. <laughs> well, dude, it's just insane to me that we've like got three questions into it and we're already knocking on an hour. That I'm like, wow. I mean, this is a really good conversation. I'm really enjoying it. Even though we've gone off the cuff and we just got into it, it's genuine and I'm I'm digging it. Well, and I so, want people to know too, this is this is why we need to listen to each other. You know, Lee and I aren't screaming at each other. We're not mad at each other. I'm we're you know, we're not calling each other false teachers. This is how you, it's okay to ask questions when you hear a position that's something that you're maybe a position either A, you don't agree with, or B, you're not familiar with. And it's, it's, there's nothing wrong with that. And, you know, in doing so, Lee's not challenging my salvation. I'm not challenging his salvation. I'm just trying to get a better understanding of what Lee's saying. And I, and I hope that this is uh, being beneficial to the audience. So the last question though, since we're talking about miracles, we'll kind of end on that is, there are a lot of people who they, when they hear this, they're going to say, well, Lee, it sounds to me like you're basically saying whenever something is non-scientific or perhaps even anti-scientific, then you, you, you need to always choose science, even if it means choosing science over God. And so my question, which I'm actually trying to find it uh, here in the notes, um, let's see. Here we are. So this is this is what people have asked me about you. <laughs> when I told them, I said, well, ask Lee himself. You know, but, <laughs> but it's wild this, how that works, isn't it, man? This, people this, always want to talk to everybody but you. <laughs> this is the question people ask me. They said, well, you know, they're concerned with what you're saying. And they said, because this line of think, thinking seems to lead to denying miracles ultimately, because miracles are not scientific. So if if, if you have to choose between what you know to be true, whether it's ex experimentally, meaning that maybe you lived during that time in the first century or be, you know, before that, we don't have all the, that you didn't have the science we have today, or you're living today and you do understand the science. And so it's more of this is against nature and what we understand to be true through the study of science. Regardless, if, if you're faced with having to trust in God, and even people have quoted, you know, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in God, lean not on your own understanding. Is this not going to lead you ultimately to denying miracles? And if not, why not? Why can, why can you be okay with still accepting miracles while saying that the reason you reject Genesis is because it's unscientific? And on that basis, is not the resurrection unscientific? Is not the virgin birth unscientific? And to that questioner's 
credit, there is a lot of people who have gone that that road and they have said, well, because of my study of science, I'm going to have to take anything that is anti-science or against science in any way out of the scripture, or I just have to somehow contextualize it. So Jesus really didn't resurrect uh, from the dead. Jesus really wasn't born a virgin. And the reason I know that's because I know science and I know scientifically, there's no way that you can have a child without having sex. And so unless Mary had sex, there's no way Jesus could have, could have been born. So how do you respond to those types of accusations, especially in light of how there have been people who've gone down that road and ended up just, for lack of better words, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, should you say, throw the baby out who was born miraculously with the bathwater? <laughs> well, and, well, and dude, that's a fair question because like you said, there are a lot of people that have gone down that road. I mean, Thomas Jefferson wrote his Jeffersonian Bible, which kept all of the sayings of Jesus, but he edited and redacted all of the passages that dealt with any miraculous occurrences because he said that those things couldn't occur within the natural order. You know, Bart Ehrman is a scholar that I think of, and he's one that you've read. He's one that I've read. He's got a lot of good stuff. He's got a lot of really good contextual stuff, but he has lost his faith. He has left his faith behind. He's still a biblical scholar, but he has become an agnostic. And he, he said he doesn't believe in all of those things anymore for a lot of the reasons that, that you just went through. I don't fall into that camp. And I don't think that you can throw the miraculously born baby of a virgin out with a bathwater in this or with a baptismal water. You like that one, did you? That. I did. I really like that, that was one. Good. I'm going to write that one down. I'm going to use that again sometime. We, we can put that on a t-shirt, dude. But I, I don't think that you have to, if you accept a scientific purview of the world, and you look at the scriptures through a different interpretive lens as it relates to ultimate origins, that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to reject miracles. And there's two reasons for that. You and I, we briefly discussed that. So we, I think we can touch on that a little bit. One reason is because, and I know this is, this is probably really going to spook some people, is in my former tradition within Pentecostalism, I, dude, I witnessed things. Woo, woo, even, woo, yeah, woo. let me tell you. Yeah, I know, right? Red flags, baby, red flags. <laughs> but, dude, I witnessed some things that even I can't explain. And my current view on miracles is secessionist. I don't believe that miracles have persisted, but I'm always open to studying that idea in more detail. But even that perspective can be really, really hard. I remember a an old man who was a part of our church whenever I was growing up who developed throat cancer. And he was scheduled to go in and have a biopsy done. So he goes in, they do imaging, they see this tumor on his on his throat, and they they imaged it, they saw it, they were like, yep, that's what it is, we're going to biopsy and see what kind of cancer it is. Um, he They go in and they take the biopsy of the cancer, and it, it was a pretty big growth. I mean, it, you thought that the guy had a thyroid problem because it looked like he had a goiter on his neck. So they, they sample it. They find out what kind of cancer it is. They develop a chemo plan and a radiation plan. They say, okay, you're going to report back. We're going to start radiation on this date and everything else. Well, everyone in our church is praying for him that he'll be healed miraculously. And he goes up to the front of the building. And, and at that point, that church that I grew up in, we believed in the, uh, the laying on of hands and anointing with oil. So he's anointed with oil. He's prayed over. His lump went away, man. It went away, like right there in front of everybody, his lump, he walked up and he stepped on that stage with a lump on his neck, the size of a baby's fist. And whenever he stepped off of that stage, that lump was gone. It was gone, dude. So he goes in and he gets some imaging done. That cancer's gone. It, there's not a trace of it on any imaging. They did four different re-imaging and they're like, we can't explain this, but your cancer's gone. So 
that is one reason why I don't believe you can throw out miracles. And part of that reason is because miracles, even today in other traditions and other parts of the world, they're widely reported and widely spoken of. I mean, they're not a super common occurrence. I mean, there's close to 8 billion people on this planet. And how do we know it's a bona fide miracle versus some shyster like Benny Hinn just trying to shine people on and get money? We don't know that. But if you look throughout history, you see reports of miraculous events taking place. Whenever you look, especially at the New Testament narrative accounts that take place, in the Old Testament, you're thousands of years removed from the events that take place in some cases before they were written down by those who wrote them down. You have oral traditions that are passed on, and I believe um, preserved by the inspiration of the Spirit until the point that they're written down. But in the New Testament, you have something completely different. You have just a few decades passing between the events that take place and the eyewitnesses writing those things down or the protégés of those eyewitnesses writing and writing those things down. So even in that sense, you have a generic difference between what we see in the ancient creation narrative versus what we see in the accounts of miracles that take place. But the second reason is a reason that you spoke to, and it, it's the way that I thought, but you put it way better than I did whenever we were, we were kind of talking about this idea. And it's that miracles by their very definition are not scientific. In order for something to be a miracle, it has to violate the laws of science. It has to. There's no other way that it can, if it keep, if it's in keeping with the laws of science, it's not a miracle, but just by definition. So in that sense, all miracles are non-scientific. And at that point, we have to decide, are we going to accept these miracles as a matter of faith? Or are we going to reject them on, on the notion of science? There almost is a dichotomy there, if we want to call it that. And to me, it does, it's not inconsistent at all to accept miracles, but reject a literal six-day creation. And the reason for that is, is because of the generic discourse in which that creation account is um, presented and the generic discourse through which the miracles are presented as well with those other factors that play a role that we just talked about before. Yeah, and this is something that I agree with you on completely and wholeheartedly, and that is that you can accept the Genesis account as being parabolical, uh, mythical storytelling, whatever word you want to use to describe it. In other words, not literal, without going down the road of rejecting miracles. And the, the reason why I believe that, regardless of what position you take, is this is not the same in my in my understanding this is not the same conversation it's a it's a completely different conversation because lee from my understanding you can correct me if i'm wrong is not saying he rejects certain things in the bible because they go against science in and of itself what he's saying is is that when you take into consideration what we know to be true and you take into consideration what the Bible says, and, and you harmonize that. That's why, in in his understanding of how he's harmonizing that, is why he's rejecting it because he's taking not only science, but he's also taking ancient Near Eastern literature, and he's saying, okay, so based upon what we know to be true scientifically outside of Scripture, and and based upon nature, the Earth cannot be young. Based upon what we know through ancient Near Eastern literature. This is the way that other ancient Near Eastern people groups understood and wrote. And so it would seem contextually and historically they're not giving us science. And it's on that basis in which you're rejecting a young earth, not simply because, well, scientifically 
it couldn't happen because, as we just pointed out, scientifically, no miracle can happen because yeah. it, it, by nature, it can't be, it can't be proven by science. Otherwise, it wouldn't be a miracle. And so, I think it's important for people to understand that it's this type of false dichotomy that scares people. And I'm why I'm glad Lee is talking about this is because number one, people need to understand. You need to understand. You who are listening to this, that you can believe this while still believing in miracles, while still accepting the Bible. In fact, Lee would argue that this is the most biblical way to understand the Bible. And that doesn't mean, you know, just because you deny the the parable of the Good Samaritan doesn't mean you deny the miracles. Um, So to me, there's a lot of implication that people tend to make when someone believes in theistic evolution or uh, as, as I guess the newer term is evolutionary cre- creationist is that yeah, correct yeah evolutionary at- creation and so when if if you take that position it's it's important and vital for people to understand you're not saying science versus the bible you're saying the bible's not meant to be a book of science but that doesn't mean when it gives examples of miracles that those should be denied on the basis of science correct Exactly. Yeah, you said that. You said that perfectly because miracles in and of themselves are like, like you said, they're not science. You don't use science to determine whether or not a miracle happened or not. Whenever you look at the the scriptures, you you accept those things on faith. And then there are some people who say, well, if you accept those on faith, well, then why don't you accept you know what the Bible says about Genesis on faith? Why don't you accept a literal six day creation? And the reason for that is is because, well, for one, it, it's hard to reconcile that with everything else that we see. But secondarily, how do we know that that's the way that Genesis is meant to be interpreted? How do we know that that's the way Genesis is meant to be written? Because if, if we look at the scriptures from the perspective of their purpose, it, the question is, is what is the goal of scripture? What is its purpose? Why did God inspire those men to write what they wrote? And what is the goal of what was written? Is it to tell us how the earth came to be? Is it to tell us what the smallest seed is? Is it to tell us what um, what is a ruminant and what isn't? Is it to tell us that, you know, which animals are birds and which aren't? What is the purpose of, of Scripture? Is it to tell us the nature of the earth and whether it's round or flat or whether the earth has foundations or whether we live in a three-tiered universe or whether there's a hard dome over the earth and God's throne sits on top of the waters of chaos that this dome keeps at bay? Is that what the purpose of Scripture is? No. The purpose of Scripture is for God to reveal himself to men by accommodating the language of man and the worldview that man possessed at the time that he inspired them to write what they wrote that he might know us and we might know him and that he might reveal his son to us, his ultimate plan of redemption from the foundations of the earth. We want to borrow that term from the beginning of time. God has wanted to have a people and to know his people. And that's the purpose of scripture. And whenever we look at it through that lens, it doesn't matter how old the universe is. It doesn't matter how old the earth is. It doesn't matter whether there were six literal days of creation that took place or whether they were epochs of time or whether it is parabolic, mythic, poetic, poetic storytelling meant to say something about the nature of God and the nature of Israel and the nature of, of, of how we come to know him and who he is. None of that matters 
anymore. Well, whenever and, we look at it in that way. And another concept that I think is important to bring in with with idea of science and miracles, and this is a a conversation I had with a, a listener, is. And by the way, this might be something two weeks or three weeks or two months later, I come back and say is the dumbest thing that I've ever said. But <laughs> the, I, I think out loud. And so this is something when I was having this conversation with this this listener, I, I told him that I'm, I'm just talking. I'm thinking out loud. And I think we need to be able to think out loud and come back and say, hey, I thought more about that. And it was right. Or I, I think, thought more about that. And I don't think I was and I don't think I was right. So I think we need to be open and honest to, to just thinking out loud. This is how we learn. But I personally see a difference by something that is disproven by science uh, versus something that is unproven by science. Yeah. And yeah. so when you talk about creation and, and and not just creation, let's 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 think about something such as the earth being flat. That has been disproven by science. Okay. That I mean there there is there is no one uh, well, I'm not gonna say no one. There are people living today who believe the earth is still flat, but that that has been disproven experiment, experimentally. Uh, it's been proven uh, factually. It has been 110% disproven. The earth is not flat. The earth is round. Okay. That's disproven. When you talk about a miracle, science can't disprove a miracle. It simply cannot prove a miracle. So science can say, well, scientifically, I there, 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 you know, there's no way scientifically that someone can be born of a virgin. Okay, that that can never be proven by science. It's unproven. But I don't think that it can disprove the occurrence of that happening because it's outside of the realm of science. And so since it's outside of the realm of science, it can it's simply unproven. It's not disproven. And and I and, and the guy I was speaking with, he said he thinks that I'm uh, kind of splitting hairs there, but I don't think it's splitting hairs. I think there is a difference when we talk about something that science has clearly disproven, hundred percent shown to be false, versus something that science that is above science that it it can't even be put under examination because by its very nature it's unscientific. Thus, and and Bart Ehrman brings this up with history. History itself cannot prove miracles. Um, you, you can excuse me. You cannot prove a miracle through a historical method because all you're all you're dealing with is people's testimonies. But those testimonies are very strong. And where I would agree with Bart is we have placed too much effort and in trying to be scientists and in trying to be historians instead of simply being people of faith. That doesn't mean we shouldn't study science or we shouldn't study history, but we've got to quit trying to make the Bible a book that it's not. And, yeah. and that, to me, is the biggest takeaway if someone's listening to this and they've gone through all these different apologetic Bible classes and they think they have to prove every little uh, you know, thing in the Bible to show that it, it goes with my understanding of science. And, and you know, we have to historically be—in fact, um, William Lane Craig, I, I love the man, but I, I mean, the way that he debates in trying to prove the resurrection of Jesus, I just highly doubt Jesus— really wants us to mathematically prove his resurrection. I just don't think that that was ever on his map. And and you have guys who are extremely smart. William Lane Craig is a, a genius. But when you start talking in that way, it's it to me the average person not only going you know you're losing the average person, but that's not really you're getting away from that faith element that you discussed with miracles. And so no, science does not prove miracles and cannot prove miracles, but by nature science cannot disprove a miracle because you cannot 
put a miracle within the scientific method. So I do think there is a difference, which is why I believe that what you're discussing is not the same thing when we're talking about miracles. Well, and it is, and, and the distinction that you make between something unproven and something disproven, it's I think that's a really good way to look at it. And like you said, we may revisit that in a few months down the road and be like, wow, that's not really a good way to put that. This is better. And to our listeners, we'll recover that for you. We'll, we'll be sure you, we bring you up to date with, with all of those changes. But, you know, in ancient, in my mind, a literal six-day creation has been disproven. And from where I sit, uh, like you said, a flat earth, it's been disproven. And the earth being on foundations and immovable, it's been disproven. But there's no way that you can disprove the the miracle of the fleece in Gideon's situation. There's no way that the miracle of the Red Sea parting can be disproven. There's no way that the resurrection can be disproven. Are they unproven? Yes. And they will never be proven by science. And you can't. You can't prove Un, something unscientific by science, something that is beyond science. But and that and that's that's where when I listen to these debates on the resurrection, a lot of these are are very interesting and I think ultimately fruitless because you can't prove scientifically or mathematically or any other way that Jesus was resurrected. You can't do it. Well, the, and, oh, go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> well, I was going to say, and and it's silly. It, it's it's silly to try to 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 say so because. This is where very intelligent men like like Bart Bart Ehrman and these these other guys who are like this is silly that Christians are trying to argue this way. And what's even worse is when you try to make the Bible into a science book that it was never meant to be, never meant to be. And and when you start studying is and I'm rehashing some of this, but the ancient Near Eastern literature it becomes apparent that's not the way the Bible was written. And so uh, I think that that this has been a great discussion for people. Um, I think that people have been able to see. A little bit more on on what goes into studying a topic like this and the importance of looking at it and analyzing it from both sides. Because as I've said multiple times, I say again, I'm not where Lee's at on this, but I'm listening to what he has to say. And even if I end up not agreeing, is this something that we should divide over? Absolutely not. And that's what people need to take away. Absolutely. And, and we don't need to divide over this. In my opinion, we divide it over way too much within our tradition and then within Christendom, just by extension in general. I, there's way too much that we divide it over and we focus so much on those delineations and not enough on our common ground. And we really need to do better about that. And that's part of what this podcast is, is trying to accomplish, is trying to bring that mentality to bear. Well, I was really hoping that we'd get through all of these questions, but we got just about halfway through it. So we'll pick this up again in our next episode. There may be and, more questions after tonight. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there may be more questions. But we ever want to thank our listeners. We thank all of you so much. Um, please tell your friends about this podcast. Like our Facebook page. Share this podcast with your friends. We are on pretty much every podcasting platform out there. And we would love to hear from you. And if you have any questions, send them to us. We'd love to answer them as best we and, can. And thank you, thank you uh, to Lee for for taking some of the the curveballs here. Oh, dude, I love this stuff. And the fact that we just had kind of an extemporaneous conversation in part of that. It, I love that stuff, dude. This is this is great, and I've really enjoyed it. And I'm looking forward to answering more of these questions. And there may be more. And I'm hoping that maybe with the next episode, when we follow up with this, maybe I'll have some more help. So, in any case, we want to thank everyone once again. Leave us a review, give us five stars. That helps more than anything else. If you're listening on iTunes, give us a five star review. Share our podcast with other people. Please, please, please do so. Keep us in your prayers. We love you all, and we'll see you again soon.